Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining podcasts. Do you like to listen? Hi, everyone. It's Shelby and the Doberman Girls reaching out from haunted New Hampshire to remind you that you, too, can become an executive producer. For more information, go to www.historygoesbump.com. See you there. the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. spooktacular people welcome to this 189th episode of the history ghost bump podcast ghost tours for the theater of the mind i am your host diane and this is denise on today's episode we are featuring hampton court palace over in london and we are going to be joined shortly by our listener amanda prouty you may recognize that name because she's joined us on two previous episodes this is a location that amanda has been to so she's going to be our eyes for us she also happens to have had a haunting experience there, which is quite chilling and is similar to experiences that other people have had. So, Denise, what did you think of Shelby's bumper there? With uh, That was not only the Doberman Brigade kind of in the background, but that was Pippa at the end saying hello to everyone. Yep. So I always like it when our furry family get in on bumper. So thank you. And I have to say, when I was playing it to see what it sounded like, Tiana was sitting up on the couch and boy, she got very interested in what I was listening to all of a sudden. And she uh, she did a little barking herself in return. We have a lot of people to welcome into the Spooktacular crew, Denise. Cool. We want to welcome in Scott. Hey, Scott. Joy. Hey, Joy. Megan. Hi, Megan. Esther. Hey, Esther. Carmen. Hello, Carmen. Love this name, Sparky. Hey, Sparky. Sonia. Hey, Sonia. Sanjay. Hello, Sanjay. Ben. Hey, Ben. Who we are fangirling over as well. Ben is from the Philippines. Yay, Ben from the Philippines. Kim. Hey, Kim. And Frank. Hello, Frank. And Frank just joined the Spooktacular crew today, as a matter of fact, Denise, and there is a picture that got transferred over from something that he had posted in the No Sleep podcast group on Facebook, and it's this dollhouse that's in a cemetery, and I asked Frank to share the story with us, so we will be sharing that with you guys later on. Yeah, so thank you for sharing that, Frank. And now, this moment in oddity. The moment naughty was suggested by Tim Scott of the History Dweebs podcast. Inside of Fire Station 6 in Livermore, California, hangs a Guinness World Record holding light bulb. What does it take for a light bulb to get into the record books? An accomplishment that is not only incredible, but odd. Adolf Chalet designed the bulb and tested it against other engineers, one of whom was Thomas Edison. The idea behind the test was to subject the various bulbs to increasing voltage. All of the bulbs eventually exploded, except for Chalet's bulb, which just got brighter with the increased voltage. But just as Nikola Tesla did not reach the heights of his rival Edison, neither did Chalet. 
The bulb is a testament to its inventor, as it is burned continuously for over a century, save for a few days when it has been moved from one location to another, and when the electricity has been cut off. It burns dimly today, high above the fire engines, attracting visitors from all over the world. The little bulb even has its own website with a live cam. The Shelby Electric Company made this bulb out of hand-blown glass with a carbon filament that appears to be a big squiggle in shape. Theories about why the bulb has lasted vary from just good design to the fact that it is not continuously turned off and on, so it has not had to use as much energy firing back up. Whatever the case may be, a light bulb burning for 116 years certainly is odd. You're not afraid of a little ghost, are you? And now, this month in history. In the month of March in 1966, a monument in Dublin, Ireland, known as Nelson's Pillar, was blown up by the IRA. Nelson's Pillar was a large granite structure with the statue of Horatio Nelson on top that was erected in 1809. In 1805, James Vance, who was Lord Mayor of Dublin, suggested the monument be built to honor Admiral Lord Nelson in his victory over the Franco-Spanish fleet at the Battle of Trafalgar. A spot was picked on the future O'Connell Street to erect the column. Thomas Kirk of Cork sculpted the statue in Portland Stone. The pillar itself was made from Wicklow granite quarried from the Gold Hill Kill Bridge with an interior made from black limestone. The complete structure rose to 121 feet. On the morning of March 8th at 1.32 a.m., the top was blown off with a tremendous explosion. Nobody was injured, but Lord Nelson was blown off his perch and much of the pillar was crumpled. After the explosion, NCAD students stole Nelson's head as a prank. Over the following six months, the head made several secret appearances, including making its way onto the stage of a Dubliner's concert in the Olympia Theater. Nelson's head is now stored at the Dublin City Library. Today, the Millennium Spire, or Dublin Spire, stands in the same spot that Nelson's pillar once did. And a fun fact is I actually have a picture of that spire that I took on my recent trip to Dublin. Hampton Court Palace, located in the London suburb town of Hampton, dates back to medieval times. Throughout the centuries, the palace has been expanded to the point that it has become two palaces in one. The first is a Tudor palace that was transformed by both Cardinal Wolsey and then King Henry VIII, and a Baroque castle that was built by William and Mary. The interior decor has changed to suit the occupants, who have ranged from knights to cardinals to kings and queens. What has been left behind makes Hampton Court a museum of history. Spirits have been left behind as well. Join us and our listener Amanda Prouty as we explore the history and haunting experiences, one of which is hers, of Hampton Court Palace. The name Hampton is Anglo-Saxon with ham meaning an enclosure in the bend of a river and ton meaning farmstead. In 1236, the Knights Hospitallers of St. John, Jerusalem acquired the Hampton Medieval Manor and they used it basically as a huge storage hall for their produce and they had an estate office there. In the 14th century, it was updated to be a guest manor for the wealthy, and then the knights began to rent the property out. Giles Dobney became Lord Chamberlain to King Henry VII, 
and he leased Hampton Court in 1494. The value of the property increased when he lived there, but the real changes would come when Cardinal Wolsey acquired Hampton in 1514. Well, we've had you on twice before. We had you on to talk about Bryce House in Maryland, which was episode 139, and then to talk about the Witch House in Salem, which was really popular, and that was episode 143. So we're glad to have you back again. I'm glad to be back. Hampton Court Palace, I put it into the laptop to search it out, and oh my gosh, this is not only a huge place, but gorgeous. Yeah, it's absolutely gorgeous. I've been there twice. And the grounds themselves are really beautiful. And when I was living in London, they had these advertisements for it saying, come see two acres worth of history and then step outside. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Yeah, the gardens are just absolutely beautiful. And they have a huge winter market there. And I actually saw recently that there is a contest or it might be fully open to the public to spend the night there, which would be phenomenal. Except for that you'd probably get lost. I'm like, you could have your all your family and your extended family and extended family not see them for months. (laughs) Seriously. Well, and also because it was added to over time, you might be in one section of it that was the Tudor area, and then you had to go out of that building and up a different staircase to get to, like, the Stewart area or the Hanover area. It has some segmented sections, too. So this started off as just a, it was just a regular type of house during medieval times, right? And they've just added on as the different eras have come through? Yeah, so it was originally a medieval manor house, And they recently did an excavation and they found what they believe to be the oldest parts of the building dating back to several hundreds of years before it became a Tudor homestead. So Cardinal Wolsey bought the manor and added to it. And being a cardinal, he basically tried to turn it into what we would call a bishop's palace and spent an astronomical amount of money. In today's money, it's in the billions, I believe, over about seven years to really just make this luxury homestead for himself. Yeah, this Cardinal Wolsey, something else when it comes to history. So it doesn't surprise me that he would spend basically billions of dollars to make himself a a palace. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's he's an interesting character, to say the least. So this would have been during the time of Henry VIII, and I know that there are things that date to Henry VIII. I saw in the Great Hall, there's these tapestries that are all along the hall there. Yeah. So Hampton Court is most closely associated to the Tudors. It was Henry VIII's favorite palace, really, in a lot of ways. So there still is very much a super Tudor vibe. He expanded the kitchens, and the kitchens are absolutely incredible. They are just massive and expansive and you know about six or seven people could probably stand inside the hearth and have space they're just that hard wow and it just has aisles of fire pits basically for the cooking hampton court palace was we like to use the word gifted to henry the eighth but really when cardinal wolsey came out of favor henry the eighth was like okay so i'm gonna take your palace That's we'll just funny. we'll just call it what it is. So it was really it was really very much Henry VIII's palace, and he was there with five of his six wives. The only one who would have only been there as a guest would have been Catherine of Aragon. The others would have lived there at one point in time or another. So basically, the real wife never got to live there. No, no. <laughs> 
I was just looking She's at. A, I was just looking at a picture of the Great Hall, and it it reminds me of the Great Hall, like of Hogwarts, when all the kids are there eating, and it's just this huge, massive with tables and benches. It's like amazing. Yeah, it's it's really phenomenal. And Allison Weir wrote a great book about it. Hampton Court Palace, The King and His Court, I believe is what it's called. And she goes into this just lavish, luscious detail about the food that they would just bring out just dish after dish after dish for these hours and hours long meals that they would be having at the palace. So let's give everybody who's listening a visual of what this looks like. How many, I don't know, how many buildings are a part of this whole thing? So there is the main palace, which is massive. It kind of reminds me almost of my college, that beautiful red brick exterior facade. It's very long, very wide. And then there are several courtyards within the main building. And then there are the external kitchens. I want to say there are five buildings plus in total, with the main one being the one main palace the original building would that be where the great hall is now is that what it started off okay when you enter the structure you enter through the main gate and you can of course envision all these carriages coming down this great lane and you make your way to the main building and in the main building i have really good periphery vision and i can't see the end of the building wow it's very long it's very massive and inside that structure is where the Great Hall was constructed. Well, it looks almost like when you look at it from an aerial view, like it's almost a walled-in city just in itself. Like like how oh. you see a city that looks walled in. It looks like a city more than like just one, right. one place. Well, the, the King's Court consisted of about a thousand people. So it was a small city, really. It, it really was. When they were on retinue, they would have to basically either house the court throughout various manors, which weren't exactly accessible, or they would be in these large palaces. Henry VIII also, also constructed the palace at Whitehall for his court. And Whitehall is the other palace that's very closely associated with him. But Hampton Court housed over a thousand people, and that doesn't include the servants. Now, I know that it says that there are tennis courts, bowling alleys, the gardens that you've mentioned. Are those all still there? They are. The tennis court is not there anymore. But the bowling alley, you can still see some remnants of it. They've done some renovation work to Hampton Court since I've been there. So the tennis court may have been part of that renovation, kind of like George Washington's gardens were part of the renovation for Mount Vernon. Okay. I did see the bowling alley, which is not what you think of as a bowling alley. <laughs> it's much shorter, and it, I live in Massachusetts, so it's kind of more like that candle pen, duck pen kind of gotcha. bowling. But yeah, so the tennis courts were added mostly as a snub to the, the French king, because <laughs> Henry and the French king had this major rivalry where they actually got into a wrestling match once during one of their talks. <laughs> like just started wrestling like, okay, yeah, here, I'm taking you down. <laughs> yeah, basically, I'm more manly than you are. And let me show you how. Throw kind down of the palace. Yeah, actually, it happened at that didn't happen at Hampton Court Palace. It happened at a palace that they built specifically for the negotiation talk. <laughs> 
that was temporary and destroyed. I just thought it was really interesting. As I was reading about stuff with it, it was talking about the upgrades that Henry had made. Mm-hmm. He had like changed his own rooms half a dozen times. And then as I'm reading down, it's like, and then when he was done, there were these tennis courts, bowling alleys, pleasure gardens, this hunting park. And I went, wait a minute. So they're saying that these tennis courts and bowling alleys, I mean, that's dating back to the 1500s. It just amazes me that they would have something like that at a palace back then. Oh, yeah, absolutely. One of the unique features of Hampton Court is at the gatehouse to the second inner court. It was adorned in 1540 with the Hampton Court astronomical clock. And it's an early example of a pre-Copernican astronomical clock. It's still functioning to this day. The clock shows the time of day, the phases of the moon, the month, the quarter of the year, the date, the sun, and star sign, and high water at London Bridge. So very, very cool feature there. One of the things that happened is one of the reasons why Henry kept redecorating his apartments is with every wife, they would add new logos of the initials intertwined. There is one H intertwined with the A from Anne Boleyn still left at Hampton Court Palace that someone missed. Hmm. So with every new wife, he updated his apartment. Well, you know what's funny? When you think about how we've had all these great queens in history, why it was so devastating that he didn't have a male heir. It's just like he went through all these women and caused all this turmoil because he wanted this male heir. So that's that actually, it, that's where my, my love of the Tudors will come in handy. So Henry's claim to the throne and his father's claim to the throne was incredibly precarious. Henry VII's lineage was based on the legitimization of the bastard children of John of Gaunt. When Henry VII claimed the crown at Bosworth Field from Richard III, the only way to really seal the deal would be to marry who was really the true heir to the throne, and that was Elizabeth of York, the eldest child of Edward IV at that time. He became king, and she was what we call queen consort. In other words, she just kind of hung out. She didn't actually get a role. Henry VII and also into Henry VIII, they spent a long time just culling through the people who might threaten their claim to the throne. So it was very bloody in the first few years of Henry VII's reign, because he was getting rid of anyone who may be seen as a usurper. So their their claim to the throne was already tenuous at best. So Henry needed that male heir to really solidify his lineage, because the idea of a woman on the throne was still very wonky. Sure, to the English strong, right? Even though the legitimate heir of Henry the First. Matilda. And everyone remembered the stories, you know, when Christ and his saints wept because of her claim to the throne was usurped by her cousin Stephen and England was thrown into civil war for a decade. People wanted to kind of avoid that because the War of the Roses or the War of the Cousins was still very fresh in people's minds. That's one of the reasons why Henry was so obsessed with a male heir. And also other piece of the puzzle is that Henry was never meant to be king. He was meant to go into the clergy. You know what, that's right, I forgot that. Yeah, his brother was born and raised to be king, so Henry was a little spoiled from what we can tell the historical record. He was never really told no, and that really carried over into his adult life. Well, and he he didn't really want to be king at first, is that right? 
Yeah, he really didn't. It, he he wanted to just hunt yeah, and shout and write poetry because he he was an eighteen year old boy. He just he just wanted to do eighteen year old boy things. He became supreme head of the Church of England, things of that nature. But one of the reasons why he grew to become so large was right before Anne Boleyn's downfall. He was in a jousting accident. And a rather large splinter from the lance got wedged in his leg. And the wound never fully healed. So it was basically an ulcer that just never healed. So he was never really able to walk very well, let alone do any sport after that. And when you eat a 17-course meal... (laughs) And you don't move? (laughs) You don't move. Um, And also, my favorite is that they believed that fresh fruits and vegetables were unhealthy. So salad would be cooked and um, stewed with like fats and stuff. And fruits were often served drowned in honey and sugar. They, they invented the original turducken, but it was like, uh, it was like a swan stuffed inside of a pig. And then inside the swan is like pate. I mean, it was, it was like some really intense, rich food. You ever get a chance to read The King and His Court by Alison Weir? It's it's really a fascinating read. If nothing else, just hear about this sumptuous lifestyle. And I remember reading it and going, how was, how are they not overthrown for spending so much money? There's so much intrigue and scandal and layers to the to the Tudors, and we're still unraveling them. And that really is the focus of Hampton Court Palace is the Tudors. Because that's such a large component. This is his first real prize as king. Because he was able to take it from the cardinal. When he passed away, I'm assuming this passed on to his children? Right. Edward VI was there. Mary I, very, very little. She did not really like Hampton Court Palace. Elizabeth I attended there. And then it started to taper off once. James I took over, James I of England, James VI of Scotland. Hampton Court was actually very close to being raised, and the materials were used for something else. Wow, I can't imagine they would tear it down. It basically fell into disuse by the time the Hanovers took over. So the last monarch to utilize Hampton Court was George II. So we're talking the 1750s, 1740s. Yeah, because Elizabeth I, they said she would kind of hang out there every so often, but it wasn't really a place that she cared that much about. Some, she much added preferred Whitehall. Yeah, because they said she, they added, she added onto the kitchen and stuff and did some yeah. window decorating, but really that was about it. The stewards played around the gardens. The stewards really liked the garden area. But basically the house just fell into disuse and the only people staying there were the servants. How lucky for them. <laughs> I know, right? And that was that was very much part of the course. You you would have your servants spread throughout all these different palaces so that if you ever showed up, they'd be ready to go. Now, they had this hunting ground. That's still a part of the property, too. Yeah. Correct? So I've been to Hampton Court twice. Each time, I was there for a good six hours. And I still didn't see everything. Mm. And I'm not the kind of person who reads all the plaques or anything like that, but I, I went in and out of every building. 
I'm I'm much more of a Tudor fan than the later, like the Hanover area. I didn't really, I kind of looked at it and was like, okay, cool. And I moved on. Both days I went there, they were really beautiful days. So I spent a lot of time in the gardens and then just turning around in the gardens and getting a look at the house of what it would look like from the river, Mm -hmm. which was how a lot of people would also approach it. Um, A lot of people would arrive by boat. I heard rumors too that because the way the palace is so large, it was a great place to host plays and other kinds of entertainment. And William Shakespeare, I think, had visited. Is that correct? Do you know? There are rumors. I mean, there are there are still people who believe Shakespeare wasn't real. Well, you know what's interesting is this is going to go out in March. In April on the 23rd, we're going to have a, a roundtable talking about Shakespeare and debating who was Shakespeare, was he really who they say Shakespeare was. And then we're going to talk about the ghosts and the plays and stuff like that. So it's interesting that you say there's a little bit of debate there, whether he was who they say he was. Right. And, you know, I, and even I'm like, I want to believe that Shakespeare was one man and a great author and everything. But part of me is also like, maybe it was a group of people. I'm not sure. But Hampton Court Palace is very, very close to London, very easily accessible by, by boat. And I got there by train. There is, there's a Hampton Court station very close to the house. So it is very likely that the various play companies from London would have been brought down to Hampton Court to entertain the court. And it is very, very likely that Shakespeare was among them. I know when the Stuarts came in, one of them was Charles I, and mm-hmm. he had gotten a hold of the triumphs of caesar are those still there and did you get to see them i did not get to see those how much is it are do those? they do they have like an uh, like an art gallery area or something where they have a lot of these artifacts the entire palace is pretty much an art gallery <laughs> <laughs> yeah there, there is so, there's so much artistry throughout the palace and very typical of palaces you also have a room just covered in paintings basically in their frames I may have seen the Triumph of Caesar, but I don't remember if I did or not. I remember the tapestries the best. What kind of broke my heart about the tapestries is that they're covering up all the beautiful wood carvings on the walls. Because there are places where the tapestries aren't hung that you just see this beautiful carved wall. Ceilings are embellished with carvings. The windows are absolutely enormous. The Haunted Gallery is covered in artwork. The whole place, it's very much like the Vatican, where it's just an art museum. Gotcha. Makes you wonder um, why Henry VIII decided to cover up all the wood with the, the tapestries. Well, tapestries serve multiple purposes. One of them was for insulation. Okay. Being the windows are so large, it would have gotten quite drafty in there. And the fireplaces are at the end of the halls, not in the middle. So it would have gotten quite drafty. So the tapestries are a certain insulation. They also would have helped to reflect some of the light because the wood walls are quite dark. I know one of the fiery characters, obviously, this started off with Cardinal Wolsey. And then we had Henry VIII coming through. But Oliver Cromwell actually mm-hmm. used this as a place that he resided during a certain amount of time. I, I know that he used to spend weekends there. Yeah. Oliver Cromwell, for as much as he, quote unquote, despised the king, he really enjoyed being a king. <laughs> he didn't mind the, the trappings of being royalty like that. No, I, I kind of find Cromwell not just a problematic character from history, but also a really fascinating character from history. Mm-hmm. So after 
Charles I was executed, Cromwell really did enjoy some of the trappings of the king, to say the least. It was kind of at the end of the Stuarts' reign that they started getting more of a Baroque look in there. It's it, mm-hmm. This really is kind of a history book as you're, I, I'm getting this feeling as you're walking through the palace and you're seeing the different additions and architecture that they've added to it. It's like, this decade was like this and this century was like this. and Yeah. Well, what's so fascinating is in the Stuart to Hanover areas, they're so distinctly not Tudor. And then it, it really is very segmented. In that sense, you're just going from one time period to the next. It's almost like they let's ignore the Tudor section and just added something else. Well, and what's interesting, too, is I've just been looking through here at, you know, different tours and different histories of the palace. It's like everybody has a piece of history in, in Britain's lineage there because they have tours from ghost tours to tours mm-hmm. of the, the history of the people that live there, even the history for a lot of the people in the LGBT community. They have a whole 400-year history there, too. And so it's like, oh, my gosh, it's like no matter who you are, you can go and find your history at this one palace. Yeah, those tours are fairly new. And I've got to go back to Hampton Court to just kind of do every tour they have. Well, there's a lot of um, them because I was like, oh, what do we want to do when we go to England? So I clicked on. I was like, holy cow. Exactly. And like I said, I mean, it, it really is a full day excursion just because there's, there's just so much to see. Well, this isn't a royal place for, for the monarchy to stay anymore, is it? It's just kind of a, is it for the public now? Yeah, it's for the public. The current monarchy, the favorite houses are Windsor, mm-hmm. Kensington. Kensington Palace is actually in London, but Windsor's the, the favorite retreat. It seems like all the later ones, as you started getting into the Hanover era, most of them seem to favor Windsor Palace. Yeah. And I'm not I'm not quite sure why. I need to find out why. And Windsor Palace is phenomenal in itself. There's a lot of apartments that are supposed to be in here. So how, did you get to visit some of the... Because it calls it a labyrinth of apartments and they all are different sizes and stuff. Did you yeah. get to go see some of those? Yeah, I saw I saw as much as was open to the public at the time. So basically what I did was I started in one end of the palace and I worked my way to the other end, went upstairs and worked my way back. And when we're talking about apartments, it's not like, oh, well, here's a couple of rooms. It was like 12 to 14 rooms and the largest one has yeah. 40 rooms. So yeah. we're saying Bigger apartment. Than house. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's like little houses yeah. inside of it. Well, because you have you have the, the meeting rooms, you have the bedroom, you have the study room, you have the drawing room, you have the room where the women would do their hobbies and the men would do their hobbies. Because it's, it's also very segregated by gender. You know, you have the queen's apartments and you have the king's apartments. Mm. And they're close, but it, they're still two very different worlds. My favorite era is the Victorian era, and it was Queen Victoria that actually opened up the palace to visitors. I thought that's very cool. Yeah. Queen Victoria, one of the perks to her was that because she became queen at such a young age, she felt like she had a lot to prove. So she really wanted to be a queen of the people and make certain things accessible. That's also a great time period in which the concept of outdoor space for all people was really important. So people would have picnics in the gardens, things like that. 
People do sell picnics in the gardens, actually, come to think of it. It was really cool. Like you said, she said this should be thrown open to all of her subjects. Because I guess before that, if you basically bribed the housekeeper, you could get a quick little tour. <laughs> yeah. So you had to have some kind of social standing and a large wad of money they would take you through. And she said, no, this is open for everybody. And the rest of the housekeeper probably and the other people who were taking care of the palace were like, uh, you can't let these rabble rousers come through here. They're going <laughs> to tear up stuff. They're going to steal stuff. And that didn't happen. So it was just very cool. Very well manned as well. You know, there are docents and guards and even costume guides throughout the building. So that's that's nice as well. So that there are people you can ask questions of. You said you spent a lot of time in the gardens because both times you went it was absolutely beautiful. Did mm-hmm. you happen to go into the maze? Because it's one of the last mazes left, right? That's a living maze. Yeah. I did not go into the maze. The maze is on the other side of the palace from the main gardens where I was. I think I've just seen The Shining way too much. (laughs) (laughs) So I chose to not do the maze. So what they do with the maze, there are a couple ways you can go. You can go in on your own. You can take a map. They do ones that are a bit more family friendly so that they don't get so turned around and lost. I, I felt like I didn't have the time to do the maze as well. I was really there for the history because I, I'm such a Tudor freak that I had the Tudor Rose tattooed on my arm. Oh, okay. So we know where you stand on that then. <laughs> I hear What Child Is This? And I'm like, that's not the right song. <laughs> Should like, be Greensleeve. Like, no, no. This guy named uh, Jerome K. Jerome had written this book called Three Men in a Boat. And he'd said that when they get there to this maze, he said, well, just go in here so that you could say you've been. It's really simple. It's really absurd to go through there because all you got to do is just keep going to the right and eventually you'll get out. So we'll just rock around for about 10 minutes and then we'll go get some lunch. And they were lost for hours inside the maze. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, being in Massachusetts, I don't know if you guys have heard these stories, but in October, we have all these corn mazes around and people have actually had to call 911. (laughs) <laughs> you know, I think we've so had that here too. Oh yeah. Oh, okay, good. I'm 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 sure it's not just in Massachusetts. So they're not as smart as the little boy in The Shining, where they can like backtrack their feet, get somebody lost to die, and then run out of the maze and say, "Mommy." <laughs> yeah, that would be the perk to the snow, right? <laughs> I was there, both times I was there was in the summer. The first time in July, the second time in August. So it was just bluebird skies, absolutely gorgeous weather. Now, I was just looking through some pictures as well of the palace and the grounds. And one picture I'm seeing, it looks almost like a moat. Are there moats there as well? Yes. So it's right on the Thames. And what they would do back in the day, when because the roads were not exactly reliable, is that they would recreate little canals off of the rivers. And that would be how people got from one location to the other. So there are various waterways. The Stuarts took over after the death of Elizabeth I in 1603. William and Mary ruled as joint monarchs, which was quite unique. After the death of Queen Mary, King William wasn't interested in Hampton Court. He fell from his horse in 1702 and died at Kensington Palace. He was succeeded by his sister-in-law, Queen Anne, and when she died in 1714, the Stuart dynasty came to an end. She was succeeded by George I, who was followed by his son, George II, and they were the last monarchs to reside at Hampton Court. Well, apparently this place is uh, haunted. I'm not surprised with all of the monarchs that you had coming through, particularly Henry VIII, who had a penchant for killing his wives. 
So did you get to do a ghost tour there at all? No, I didn't do a ghost tour. I did have probably one of my more unsettling paranormal encounters there, though. The ghost tours are now done mostly at night, actually, which is pretty cool. Mm -hmm. I stumbled in on my wandering. I stumbled into what I now know is called the Haunted Gallery. Did not know it's called the Haunted Gallery at the time. Even though it was a beautiful day and there were people around, it was a it was very quiet inside the building itself. So I was pretty much the only one for several rooms. And I'm walking through the haunt the the gallery, the haunted gallery, and take it all in because, like I said, there are a lot of paintings on the walls. There's a lot of beautiful things to see, and I hear footsteps behind me. So I'm like, oh, I better get out of my way because I I know that I'm going to be in here for a while and. I looked to greet the person because that's just how I am. And there was no one there, yet I kept hearing footsteps. Which is pretty clear. I mean, you you can't imagine that you're hearing footsteps behind you. And when you turn around and there's nothing there, that would be very unsettling because I know what you're thinking. Oh, I better stop looking at this painting because somebody else is going to want to come look at it. Right. And what got a little unnerving, why it kind of creeped me out a bit, besides I just got a really unsettled feeling, but the footsteps sped up. Like someone was about to start running. And did it sound like it was speeding up in your direction or away from you? In my direction. Do you know who haunts the haunted gallery? Yeah. So uh, after I, you know, settled down, because I actually threw myself up against the wall to be like, I'm going to get out of this person's way. (laughs) You could visualize it because the footsteps are speeding past you and then they Doppler away. And so after I gathered myself, I went up to the guard who was at the other end in the next room. And I was like, did someone walk by that I didn't see? He's like, no. I was like, okay, because I heard footsteps and I heard footsteps starting to run through the gallery. He goes, oh, that's just Katie. (laughs) I'm like, I'm sorry, Katie. He's like, yeah, Katie, Catherine Howard. What? (laughs) Yeah. Did he tell you the story behind why she would be haunting in that room? Right. So I, I actually knew the story. Um, but that's why I just gave him this look like, I, I got to go. Well, that's why um, I asked you if if you were aware of who was haunting there, because if I'd heard something that sounded like it was running in that room and I knew the story behind it, I would. Yeah, I would have been very unnerved. Yeah, I was I was not so secretly hoping to be like Anne, Anne Boleyn or Anne of Cleves or Catherine Parr. When Henry VIII got notified of Catherine's infidelity, and there, it, there's a lot of historical evidence to support the idea that she was unfaithful, he was at his church services at the other side of the, the gallery. And that's where he would also hold a lot of meetings during his church services, because the church services would be so long that he actually just started conduct meetings while the sermons are going on. So Catherine was put under house arrest inside Hampton Court Palace, and she broke loose and tried to get to the king. So they say that she is heard running through the haunted gallery on her way to try to protest her innocence to the king and beg his forgiveness or something along those lines. Well, apparently she wasn't doing it quietly. She was screaming. So they call her the screaming lady. Right. I did not hear screams. I I just got... (laughs) Real, I know, right? I just got this really unsettled feeling like something was really not right. It wasn't oppressive. It was just, it was a little heart achy. It was a little queasy feeling. I, I guess it, you could kind of equate it almost to an, the start of an anxiety attack. It's kind of what it felt like. 
Okay. But I didn't realize that at the time, but now that I'm reflecting on it, that's that's kind of how the best I can equate it. So it was almost like the emotions that she probably was feeling at that moment were coming like, at you. Right. I just, I just love the nonchalance of the guy. He's like, yeah, that's Katie. Yeah, no big deal. Obviously, he's it's, met it a few <laughs> times. Yeah, he's like, it happens all the time, whatever. I was a teenager. I was 17 years old. I was like, uh, I gotta go. Yeah. So she's she's one of the most more famous and present hauntings there. There is also Jane Seymour. Okay, so he's got another wife that's hanging out there too. Yeah. yeah. So Jane Seymour gave birth to Edward VI at Hampton Court Palace, and she died within two weeks of him being born. So there is something called the Candlestick Gallery, the Candlestick Staircase. The staircase used to go up to her chambers. It doesn't go up to her chambers anymore because of the rehabbing and the renovations. But they say, Denise, this is your lady in white. They say you can see this lady in white carrying a candle up these stairs. And it almost always is around the anniversary of Edward VI's birth. That seems to back up the stories then because you have some history there. Right. So it's it's her and her nightgown, which is a little interesting because Jane Seymour was considered a very proper woman. So for her to be seen in her night shift is really interesting. So it really shows her as a very vulnerable spirit. Mm-hmm. There's also Sybil Penn, who is heard spinning. She was a, a nursemaid to many of the Tudor children. She is connected to Mary Elizabeth and Edward VI, if memory serves me correctly. And people hear spinning wheels going behind walls. Now, she has a color moniker, too. She's known as the Gray Lady. The Gray Lady, right. Which makes me think she must have worn a lot of gray as her servant wear or something, maybe? Yeah, I mean, it's very probable. Now, the the maid, we use the word maid in the sense that they were almost like a companion, because this is the person who took care of them when they were younger. So they be, essentially became a companion. So under Elizabeth I, very dark colors were very popular. Um, Elizabeth I was known to wear a lot of black herself. Gray is a very popular Tudor color. So I, I am curious about Sybil Penn's wardrobe because because of her status as the nursemaid and then the maid to those monarchs, she would have been able to have a fairly nice wardrobe and she would have been in a typical servant coarse cloth. Well, not only that, but she must have been somebody pretty important. I mean, a nursemaid, obviously, you're putting the care of your royal children in her hands. They built her a very impressive tomb when she died. So it wasn't like she got some servant's tomb or something. Yeah, she, I mean, she was with the royal family for decades. Oh, wow. What's interesting about her, too, is that she had nursed Elizabeth I through smallpox. And I believe that is what killed Dame Sybil was smallpox later on. I believe so, yeah. Well, apparently her tomb that was over at a nearby church, they were doing some remodeling and they decided that they would move her tomb. And of you're course thinking, they did. Yeah, so you're thinking she's got this impressive tomb. Now, I don't know if they changed it so it's not as impressive as it had been, but they said literally right after they moved it, that's why they equated the hauntings to her, not only because she obviously must appear in some kind of clothing that indicates that, but that right after they disturbed her tomb, they started getting strange noises in Hampton Court and they were in chambers that she normally would be in. And like you said, it's the sound of a spinning wheel going and that was something she did a lot. 
I mean, that's the same cause that initiated Catherine Parr's haunting of Sudley Castle when they opened her coffin. That's why we always say on the show, I don't know why they fool around with people's graves, because it seems like if you start doing that stuff, I, I don't know why people are so attached to wherever you've been buried, but they seem to be that way and they get very upset about it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, that, I mean, that makes a lot of sense with Sybil. And then they have one that's called Skeletor. Did you hear anything about that? Yeah. So Skeletor, Skeletor was a very interesting one. So on the original site of Hampton Court, the original manor people believe had monastic ties to it. And you also have Cardinal Wolsey, who would have had priests and monks coming through. So Skeletor, it was caught on CCTV opening these doors. The do- Actually, it looks like the doors blow open. Mm-hmm. And then he emerges and closes them, I should say. It looks like a skeletal man in a monk's habit. I'm just looking at a picture of it right now, a still, and that is the creepiest thing I've ever seen. Yeah, you should definitely watch the the video. I mean, it's CCTV, so it's a little jarry, but it's, it's definitely like, what did I just see? Yeah, I just, uh, because what's really weird about it is it's got this, it's called Skeletor because, I mean, it looks like almost a skeletal type face. Mm -hmm. It's like exactly what you would expect to be part of a horror movie, a monk that's a skeleton. Yeah, it it really reminds me of that canonical medieval Grim Reaper. When you catch something like this on the security cameras and it's the security staff that are looking at it and going, what in the world? Right. The security staff is what released it to the public. They're like, uh, we don't know what to make of this. Well, and the way this like was a three day period, the first day they kept getting called out to this fire door. Mm-hmm. So apparently it's a door that's not supposed to be opened. It's probably got, you know, nope. the sign on it. Don't go through this door. You'll set off an alarm. So I don't think there are even handles on the outside. Wow. That is, that's very interesting. So they keep going to check this, these doors that keep blowing open. And they're not finding anything. There's nobody nearby. So they're probably already like, okay, this is weird. And then they probably went back and were checking the footage to be like, why do we keep getting this alarm or whatever that's going on? And they're just seeing the doors flying open. And you're thinking, okay, even if it was somebody playing a a prank, these doors are flying open with such force that you, the person wouldn't be able to run away before the camera would catch something of them, you would think. The next day it catches this ghostly figure then. And there's a big difference between a drafty castle and doors blowing open. Exactly. I mean, you've got, especially, I'm assuming these doors are probably big wooden doors or something. They're very large. They're very heavy. There is a YouTube uh, man walking people through Hampton Court Palace in the evening, and he shows you what the doors look like from the inside of the palace. And they're, they're massive. You would have to really push against them to open them. And these two doors open simultaneously like paper. They're just, they just blow open like saloon doors. I'm not sure what to make of Skeletor. You do hear a lot of stories of ghostly monks, especially with Henry's dissolution of the monasteries. And you hear a lot of the spirit of those monks coming through throughout England and Ireland. But I'm, I'm not sure what to make of this guy. All right. I have found a video here. It's a little 16-second mm-hmm. clip. Yeah, and when, when the doors first fly open, you don't even see anything there. It's almost like he no. just appears out of thin air. Yeah, it's, it's, so the doors are at the end of a short hallway, but that hallway is very dark, and it feeds onto one of the courtyards there. 
Wow. This is, you know, people like to put out pictures and a lot of the time we're like, okay, well, it could have been photoshopped or staged or something like that. I don't even know how this could have been something that, first of all, anytime you catch something on a security camera, it gives it a little bit more legitimacy. Mm-hmm. It's like, I don't even know how somebody, because again, these doors fly open. You don't even really see anything there that's causing the doors to fly open. And then this figure just appears. And yeah. then almost like you said, pulls them shut. And that's that. And you guys would appreciate that. It reminded me of when Disney security staff released the footage of the what looks like a spirit, a specter walking away from the haunted mansion through the gate. Mm-hmm. Yes. See that one? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the that's another one of those videos. This It'll go right up with this one. Those are the two yeah. that I've watched that it's like, I don't know what the hell that is, but there's something weird going on there because even with that ghost at uh, Disneyland, to me, it looks like he actually goes and starts walking across the water. Yeah. So, yeah. So, I mean, it would it would make a lot of sense historically for there to be a spirit monk there. However, he really shows himself. This is one of the only times he's been seen and he did it on film. You know, what would be interesting is I wish that they could go back in their history and see what was going on during that. Because it's weird that it would be over a set amount of days, too. It wasn't like it was just a one-time incident. So you've got a three-day block where this happened, and whatever right. was going on was enough for him to want to manifest himself. It's not like this was some kind of a residual haunting, because otherwise we'd see this going on quite a bit. Uh-huh. So what was going on that made him, was there some, like, something going on in the country that was causing, I don't know, some kind of emotion that made him feel like he had to pop up? Yeah, so I don't know. And that, that's definitely a curiosity. Three is that ancient magical number because it goes with the phases of the moon in between the full, the new. It goes into morning, day, night, mm-hmm. the cycle of day. Three, it's just, it's so prevalent throughout history. Now that, that would be a great book, The History of Three. Well, my, fa- my favorite fact about monks is that the smartest person in the monastery ran the cellar, cellar stores where you kept the, the beer and the food. <laughs> That's why they were always jovial guys. <laughs> exactly. When, whenever it comes to a beer, trust the monks. <laughs> Great. Is there anything else you wanted to touch on that we didn't cover? I would just say to anyone who gets a chance to, to go to Hampton Court Palace and read up on whatever history there is. It re- it's a phenomenal space, and it's so deeply imbued in history. Like I said, I've been there twice, and I still know I didn't see everything. I, I'm still looking for that H and A intertwined. It's in the clock tower court somewhere, okay. but I, I was never able to find it. But yeah, so Hampton Court, definitely, that was one of the more palpable spiritual experiences I've had. I mean, when we were house hunting in Maryland, I saw the ghost of a former slave looking at me. I was like, okay. You're like, I, I had some queen from before running at me, so no big deal. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's like, okay. But I, di- I didn't feel that unsettled feeling. Like, uh-huh. this is that one spiritual experience I've had where I was felt truly unsettled. That, to me, is definitely that you were picking up on the emotion, that there's a lot of emotion involved with that haunting. Yeah. I do feel very bad for Katherine Howard. You know, she was about 16 years old when she married Henry. He was in his 50s. He was old. He was cranky. Very large. She was very young, very large. She was young. She was naive. She was probably not the brightest bulb in the chandelier and was most likely played by people around her. And even though you can grow up in a court, 
there's a whole lot of politics to that court. Um, Oh, now here's a fun fact for you. I heard a tour guide documented that when they had a ghost tour one night, two women fainted on the exact same spot in the haunted gallery an hour apart. You know, what's really interesting about you telling that story when we were in Charleston and we went with uh, Mike Brown, who hosts the Pleasing Terrors ghost tour there. It was outside of a cemetery there that he had had a couple of people who have passed out on the exact same place, you know, same time of the tour. So it Mm -hmm. makes you wonder if there's some kind of energy that comes from these spirits that is causing these people to pass out. If it's like pulling their energy and they just, you know, drop because it's like they're zapped. Yeah. And it's it's very, it's very, very likely because like I said, now that I reflect on it, it really did feel like an anxiety attack was about to happen. And I hadn't had an anxiety attack at that point in my life. But now that I think about it, I'm like, yep, that's, that's pretty much what it felt like. And there would be no reason for you to be looking at artwork and all of a sudden have an anxiety attack. No, none. I mean, I was 17 years old, right? Yeah. Yeah. That to me indicates that something happened to you that we can't really explain for you to have such a switch over of being in a, a place you were excited to see. You're looking at just artwork, which, I mean, there is some artwork that can cause us to be a little disturbed, but I'm assuming there's nothing right. really there that's going to show them like slaughtering a bunch of people or something. So it's like yeah. there'd be no reason for you to all of a sudden have this anxious feeling come upon you, especially when it coincided with you hearing mysterious footsteps. Right, right. And, you know, at first I thought it was an echo. And I kind of looked up at the ceiling going, I guess you could probably something would echo. Mm-hmm. It, it was definitely a processing moment. And then once they sped up, I was like, okay, then. Well, and that's how most haunting experiences occur. I think for most of us, when we have something happen, we're kind of like, huh, well, that's kind of strange. So you don't really register that something haunting is happening. <laughs> and then yeah. you start to process it, like you said. And then you finally get to a point of, okay, that was weird. And I think it might be something I don't even want to say. Yeah. You know, I mean, of course, I was I was secretly hoping it was Anne Boleyn who ran by me. Oh, sure. That would be what amazing. Anne, right? I'm like, oh, please be Anne. But Hampton Court Palace seems to be like the one place she doesn't haunt. Like yeah. she haunts everywhere else. Yeah, because we did uh, a bonus episode about her. And right. I, I was like, okay, when you'd mentioned that that's really one of the only intertwined monograms that is still there, you'd think, okay, well, maybe that would give her a reason to be there. But I'm like, I know she didn't come up for this one. So that's weird. But you would think since that happens to be the monogram that's there that nobody could find, what a perfect mm-hmm. spot for her to hang out. Yeah. I mean, I think that if anything ever happens to that monogram, she'll probably show up. That could be. Well, as always, it was great talking to you, ladies. Yes. yes. Give our regards to George. And uh, I'm sure we'll be talking to you again in the future sometime. Definitely. All right. Well, have a great rest of your weekend, Amanda. You too, ladies. Enjoy it. Okay. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. What was it that Amanda experienced? Was it the spirit of Catherine Howard living out her horrible ending in a residual manner? Is there a creepy dead monk named Skeletor running around throwing open doors? Is Hampton Court Palace haunted? That is for you to decide. What a beautiful palace this is. It's huge, definitely on the list when we finally make it over to London to check this out. And I will try to get a hold of a copy of that video that I can put a link up or something for you guys to look at in the show notes to this episode. Our next episode, we're coming back to America and we're going to a ghost town, Denise. We like ghost towns. Bodie. And this is a place that's been suggested to us by Debbie Miller. And I've seen quite a bit about this location. It seems to be incredibly haunted along the lines of Virginia City, except for the fact that it's actually a ghost town now. 
We'd love to have you guys check out our website at historyghostbump.com. And Denise, if people want to send us some feedback, where can they do that? They can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. And we got an email from Marissa. Hi, Diane and Denise. I just wanted to send a quick note of thanks. I am so thrilled that you guys brought back and replaced this month in history segment. I was thoroughly enjoying the podcast's new episodes while also catching up on some previous ones starting at number one until the end of November. Unfortunately, I had some health issues that put my podcast listening on hold. About two weeks ago, I resumed listening and was sad when I first heard that the history segment was going away. Then, rejoice was had when I heard the announcement that it was coming back in a new version. And thank you so much for sharing that, Marissa. And if everybody out there could please send some positive thoughts and prayers Marissa's way for her recovery, we would sure appreciate it. And then Frank sent us his story about this dollhouse in a cemetery. First, he said, first and foremost, I was introduced to your podcast by a woman named Kristen Norton. And that was because Kristen brought this post that he had put up over in the No Sleep podcast group in our group. So that was really cool. And we thank Frank for coming over. So he joined the Spooktacular crew. He went to Google Play, found the podcast, and fell in love. So he can't wait to hear more in the future. There's a lot for you to binge on, Frank. So Frank wrote, I lived in a town called Milan, Tennessee, and about a 10-minute drive east is a place called Medina, Tennessee. This is where the cemetery is located. And Diane, I think you should let them all know how you like to say the word Milan. Milan, darling, Milan. Yes, from The Incredibles. I love Edna Mode. The cemetery is called Hope Hill, and it's in on a beaten path in the woods. So there's a lot of different stories about how this young girl died. Some say she died of normal causes, while others say she was raped and beaten to death by her uncle. I hope it was normal causes. Me too. I don't know which of these accounts is true, though I would prefer not to think the worst. The one thing I know is she was five. The year was 1939. The story I heard was they lived in a two-story house, and they bought a piano, and while the movers were putting it in, the ropes broke and crushed her. After the girl was buried, her family had a dollhouse built over her grave. The dollhouse has been vandalized so much over the years, it's been replaced and repainted, and when I went, the window was shattered. This is where the story gets interesting. Legend says that you can see and hear the little girl at night playing with her toys or sitting in a rocking chair. You have to arrive at midnight and turn off everything, phones, cars, tablets, etc. You are also supposed to bring a child's toy. So one night, I decided to do this, sort of like a rite of passage in my town. And I went there around 11.56 p.m. and turned off everything and hopped the fence and opened the little door and put a Barbie in the house. And I started heading back to my car and I heard some faint giggling and brushed it off because I figured there were some of my classmates playing a tape to scare me. I brought a flashlight because the cemetery has no lights and the dollhouse has no lights either. I checked the woods to see if my classmates were there and it was empty. I started hearing the laughter again. So I get closer to the dollhouse and I shine my light in to see the rocking chair moving. Oh my God. I booked out of there. I haven't been back since. That was in 2008. I haven't been back mostly because I was moving to college and whatnot. And also the owner is not afraid to call the police. I can see his point. I do recommend if you are out that way, go during the day and check it out. It's creepy either day or night. Hopefully when I go back to Tennessee this summer, I will visit to see if it's still there. Well, I tell you, that's a hell of a story, Denise. You've got a dollhouse, a cemetery, kids' toys, and then creepy kid giggling. That's a horror movie right there. And it's written of his own account, not something he heard. Wow, that is terrifying. I don't know that I would go back there, especially not at night. Definitely during the day. 
I don't know, you might probably go back there now that you bought a shirt that has hashtag spirit tempter on it. You weren't supposed to know about that (laughs) t-shirt. Well, you posted it on Facebook. (laughs) (laughs) Here, I'll put it on Facebook. You might, did you tag me? Probably. (laughs) I did not. I was telling everybody, shh, don't tell Denise I got a t-shirt with spirit tempter on it. (laughs) I mean, I'm not on Facebook as much as you, but I do go on there quite often. (laughs) We do have these reviews from iTunes to share with you. Our first review is from TTR Girl 22. Great show, five stars. This has a great variety of topics and fun tidbits too. The ladies make the topics fun. Our second review is from Cool. If you can buy extras, great combo of history and spooky, four stars. I really like the two ladies on this podcast and that they combine history with stories of accounts. I do wish it could be theatricized more, giving it a more spooky feeling. Overall fun podcast and gives me travel inspiration. And then Amy S. from Texas. Love it. Five stars. Hey, y'all. This is my favorite new podcast. I love the dynamic between Diane and Denise. It helps my work cleaning houses fly by and the side banter between the girls makes it so personal. I feel like I'm in the room with them and welcome to be there. Keep on keeping on. Well, Amy, I don't know where you are in Texas, but we'd love to meet you when we're there in May. And do you mean you clean houses for a living? Because, wow, I have a compatriot out there doing the same thing as I do, making money. Good for you. I want to thank you guys for listening to this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. We'd like to thank Shannon Corsi for increasing her pledge. And also thank you to Christine Leo for your one-time donation. Thanks. Fan of the show? Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast catcher. We would greatly appreciate your review at iTunes as well to help the show grow. Thank you.